This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, you're listening to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Darshan Johan. Bahahilo was born and raised in Palestine. He has worked with human rights and advocacy groups, including the United Nations, the Badil Centre for Residency and Refugee Rights, and so much more. He's the co-founder of the Citadel, 1865, a cultural space in Beit Sahor. As an educator, Baha runs To Be There, an initiative that offers educational programmes about the history and culture of Palestine. Welcome to the show, Baha. How are you? Thank you. Very honored to be with you again in this studio. No, it's the honor is mine, Baha. Thank you so much for coming again. What is life like in Palestine under Israeli occupation? In in one word, I would call it like surviving oppression and denial of basic rights and freedoms. Uh, what you take for granted in Malaysia is is turned into a struggle. So like a struggle to get access to water, a struggle to get from home to university, a struggle to... Every aspect of your life is actually controlled by an oppressive regime that does not want you to be home to begin with. The name of the game for us is survival. So we're surviving oppression, everything from life to death. And the time in between is a struggle. You have to survive without knowing or understanding or experiencing or even smelling the concept of freedom. Paint a picture for me of the various Palestinian territories. Talk to me about the geography of Palestine. The geography of Palestine as a piece of land is mm-hmm. very visible, like, right. you know, it's 27.9 square kilometers. The entire geography is controlled by the Israeli regime. It's mm-hmm. controlled by a regime that treats you based on birth. If you are born to a Jewish family, your rights are granted and protected. If you are born to a Palestinian family, you are mistreated. Uh, that's the most delicate word I can say. Mistreatment includes murder, includes home demolition, arrest, punishing you for rejecting, you know, uh, Israeli state control in any possible form. Palestinians who remain in Palestine, we're talking about nearly 7 million out of the entire population controlled by the state of Israel. We're talking about nearly 7 million Palestinians. So those Palestinian communities are like... uh, Concentrations, but without visible walls around them. And then you have Palestinians in uh, Jerusalem. That's a different set of Israeli discrimination, uh, discriminatory laws that aim at squeezing 400,000 Palestinian residents from the boundaries or the geography that Israel controls or calls Jerusalem. Then you have... The area of the West Bank, on the map you see the West Bank has 18% of the land of Palestine. The geography is ripped apart Mm. by the government of the State of Israel and its army, where Palestinian communities are separated from each other. Like, uh, I uh, was born and raised in Bethlehem. If I want to go south, this is the city of Hebron or to any of the villages around the city. I have to control to pass through areas controlled by the state of Israel or by the Israeli army, and then to go into one. It's like 
like this individual turned Palestinian communities uh, into those rooms mm-hmm. and they controlled the corridors, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so to go from one room to the other, you have to get an access card. <laughs> and then you have the uh, most famous geography of Palestine, which is the bleeding heart of, of Palestine, which is Gaza. You know, Gaza is a concentration camp of Palestinian refugees who were locked up there since 1949. So the geography is one, mm-hmm. but the management of that geography is separating the Palestinians within into so many different categories, rights, forms of oppression or denial of rights. What is your earliest memory, what was it like growing up as a child in Bethlehem? I think I was five or six years old. It's right. like, what's this vehicle? Right. And I remember my father saying, like, those are our cousins. Hmm. That's what my father said. And that's kind of like, uh, you know, a religious connotation because, right. <laughs> you know, like... Uh, uh, let's say uh, my family are a Muslim family, right? So Muslims are from Ishmael, Jews are from <laughs> Isaac, mm. you know, so we are the cousins. Right. I didn't understand that. And then a couple of years later, my cousins raided the house and kidnapped my eldest brother. And it didn't make any sense of that. I had to actually have a, a gun on my thigh, pointed on my thigh. How old were you? At the age of eight. And I'm like, why are you so angry? Like a bunch of adults mm-hmm. trying to scare an eight years old kid who's actually confused. Like I was right. always like confused from the very beginning. So I was very, very, very confused until like I had this confrontation with soldiers and then uh, it was all shaped by uh, being slapped around, being kicked around, bullied by by soldiers. And of course, you develop some kind of an attitude where you blame yourself. Mm. You brought it upon yourself, you know? And it's a typical like victim mentality. So for me, the that's kind of like the starting point, right. being confused. I grew up in a Catholic school Hmm. that added to my confusion. So (laughs) born to a Muslim family, growing up in a Catholic school, the soldier between my family's house and my school identify as a Jewish person. Like, what is this? Right. (laughs) You know, because as a young kid, like you, you, you don't get to see things. Like, you know, you start like thinking or believing at early age that people's behavior is a reflection of their set of moral values. Mm. Christianity is a set of moral values. Jewish faith is a set of moral values. Islamic faith is the same. You know, kids don't know what's going on. And then suddenly you have a guy, you know, pointing a gun at your thigh, you're eight years old. Mm -hmm. You're going through all these things. How does a parent talk to their children about war, about occupation, at what age did your parents sit you down and say, okay. you, know, this, you know, this is the reality of what's going on. We are under occupation. Uh, how does that conversation even happen? Okay, I have to remind you that I'm a fifth mm-hmm. child for seven brothers and one sister. Right. Okay. 
Um, also, like I grew up in a very vibrant, low middle class house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those conversations uh, would not happen every day. Right. The the main conversation is avoid getting beaten up by soldiers at any cost. Mm. You have to be obedient. You have to be a person who avoids. Don't uh, provoke. Uh, they should be submissive in a way while surviving. Um... But at the same time, I didn't see my family being submissive. Like they would cry their uh, their hearts out, their eyes out when we would bury a child being murdered by the Israeli authorities. And it's like, and you see that outrage. Hmm. Um, I do remember uh, Israeli uh, army deciding to shut down our elementary and high schools. So my family were like, okay, we have a lot of kids in the neighborhood. We have a small place. <clears throat> Let's have like a couple of classes for the kids to come in. And it's like, I didn't understand why the army came and destroyed it. Hmm. Like, what is so provocative about kids not going to school? Like, you don't want kids to go to school, so they are not going to school. But they are in somebody's house. Like, why is this provocative? I didn't understand. I never got, like, satisfying answers from my family because, mm. like, the answers are usually typical. Blame yourself. You brought it upon yourself. It was very difficult right. for my mother, for example, to raise children with good behavior in an environment of, political, social, and economic corruption. She tried her best, you know. Here's one of the uh, things that I remember. The Israeli soldiers, like, invaded the house and uh, out of nowhere slapped me while I was having my lunch. And then the the main commander was saying, he said a, a bad word, you know. And she was like, my son does not say those words. I was like, no, he said it. And then she gave me the sharpest look. Did you say that word? Like, no, I didn't. Because at that point, like, I was scared of her. Absolutely. You know, I did not see any, <laughs> like, all the soldiers disappeared. Yes. <laughs> it's not fear as fear of being beaten, no, as yeah. much as fear of disappointment. Um, no, I did not do that. Mm-hmm. And then she asked the soldier, like, what's the evidence? And like, yeah, a boy with that T-shirt. And then she got there and it's like, yeah, this this is like a uniform for, for this is a school uniform. That's what I was wearing, a school uniform. It could be anybody, you know? And then they go, school uniform. And then they, they left. So she raised me on basic acts of kindness, regardless mm. of the... Uh, the environment that I live in, because I live in a very disgusting environment politically. And if she was not aware, that environment would shape me in a in a bad way. Right. You know? So, like, you grew up picking some of those things. Like, you right. grew up, like, actually trying to be supportive, helpful. Mm-hmm. 
I remember being accused of in school. <laughs> Uh, one of my uh, classmates was being accused unfairly of something. And I was like, oh, th- he didn't do it. I was like, who appointed you as a lawyer to this guy? I was like, <laughs> so if you speak against unfairness, you'll be accused of being a lawyer. Right. So that kind of attitude actually shut me down for for a good period of time in school and in my childhood. Did you grow up learning about the Nakba and, and things like that? When did you start learning about the extent, the seriousness mm-hmm. of what is going on? In Palestine, you are busy surviving. Right. And for each and every Palestinian, Palestine is what you survive. Mm. So the Palestine I've been surviving through is a very different Palestine from uh, the area of Ramallah, for example. So I left Bethlehem to to go and study in Birzeit University, which is about an hour, sometimes four hours drive from the house, depending on the Israelis on the way, or the checkpoints. So I discovered a different Palestine in my university than I was exposed to at home and school. And then in that university, like, I discovered other forms of Palestine because I have friends who are from the Hebron district. So in every place, you see a different Palestine. That got me to start questioning diversity or recognizing diversity and questioning that Palestine is the one I lived through. To start realizing that my education in school, my education in university, because I did a degree in sociology and political science, did not help me understand anything. Mm. I understood the Second World War more than I understood, like, the murder of my history teacher. Right. And, like, so what am I getting out of academia? I'm not getting answers for issues that are very relevant to my life, right? you know? Uh, I've always questioned that as a young man. Now, I had an opportunity to go uh, volunteer in uh, Sri Lanka for a year. Mm. And that's where the transformation started, I believe. So transformation from survival to understanding what you are surviving. That's very interesting. Tell me about what you learned in Sri Lanka. Two things. Mm. The mixture of religion and nationalism is criminal. So remember I told you, like, I was born to a Muslim family, grew up in a Catholic school. You know, the soldier is Jewish, or they identify themselves in that way. So I was like, oh, I'll go to Sri Lanka. A Buddhist country, universal love, kindness, service, and all those like beautiful reputations of a Buddhist way of life. Only to realize that Buddhism is not innocent. Because Buddhist monks, people wearing Buddhist monks' clothes, are in the parliament calling for a genocide and discrimination against others. So slowly I started realizing that any religion can be abused to justify criminal behavior. So I had to study those books, you know, and I recognize the difference between human behavior 
and sacred scripts. Then I went to the U.S. And in the U.S. it was even worse. The first, the first lesson was that it took me 16 hours from door to airport. It's a 70 kilometers stretch between my family's house in Bethlehem and the airport in Jordan. It took me 16 hours. It took me 12 hours to get from Amman to New York. That's the first lesson. It's like it make, nothing makes any, any sense. Uh, you know, there's a big difference between the U.S. you see on TV that is promoted everywhere on the planet and the U.S. I met people from different parts. And, like, the one thing in common is lack of knowledge. Like, Palestine is very present in American media. But the kind of information people are exposed to, like, kind of like would make me hate myself if it was not myself. Right. That helped me understand, like, the trauma and silence of Palestinians in the United States of America. Because if you open your mouth, you will be punished. Right. Just recently, like, three Palestinians were shot for. They, they are in hospital. One of them might not be able to, to walk ever again. You know, but those are acts of terror that are physical. You see them. Mm -hmm. The invisible terror is even more profound. So I would try to, to explain to whoever asks me where I'm from. It's like, yeah, I was born in this and that. And with my basic English at the time, I would try my best to explain. But still, people won't get it. Mm -hmm. Because the information I'm providing conflicts with their belief. So in the U.S., I realized, like, I, if I want to help people understand Palestine, the only place is Palestine. Were you shocked by the kind of propaganda um, that U.S. was putting out at the time? Because like you said, the U.S. that we see on TV, they present themselves as this heroic, pro-human rights, bastion of freedom of speech. Reality on the ground is very different. As a Palestinian, going to the U.S., and seeing the kind of propaganda, the pro-Israel propaganda, the Islamophobic propaganda, um, labeling Palestinians as, as terrorists and, and things like that, what went through your mind coming across all these things? Okay. I, I try, oh, from a very young age, I try not to be judgmental. Right. But second, like, oh my God, I have to recognize the amount of resources that are being wasted right, left, and center to brainwash American citizens into stupidity. Like, many people complain, oh, well, Americans are this or that. It's like, if you recognize that there's a process going on, and what people express is an outcome of a process, it will be more accurate to see it. So I had a person who was like, uh, uh, I like Baha, but I still hate all the Palestinians. I'm like, I'm the only Palestinian you know, and I'm not the best even of the people I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you, cl know? you clearly haven't met that many. <laughs> Any, not Any. many. <laughs> you know? Right. I had people who felt entitled, you know, that I must explain my humanity to them. Like they were so blind that they couldn't see a human being as a human. But all of that is, come, is a result of brainwashing. 
you know, fooling people, like a resource, like billions of dollars being wasted into preventing people from seeing other people as people. <laughs> that was shocking. And it's like when, when people like say like, I can't believe what you are talking about. And I'm like, yeah, I know. You've been subject to a presentation of what's happening in Palestine in a very sick way. Let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Baha Hilo, a Palestinian activist and educator. We will continue this conversation after these messages. Keep it here on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things. I'm Darshan Johan and on the show with me today is Baha Hilo, a Palestinian activist and educator. So, Baha, let's talk about your activism because... Mm-hmm. As I mentioned in the introduction, you are the co-founder of the Citadel, mm-hmm. a cultural space in Betsaho. Mm-hmm. Um, as an educator, you run something called To Be There, which is an mm-hmm. initiative that offers educational programs about the history and culture of Palestine, including mm-hmm. the annual olive harvest. I'm very mm-hmm. interested to get your thoughts mm-hmm. on that. It sounds interesting. Um, Palestinian Land Day, you also talk about Christmas in Palestine and all of that. Um, talk to me about your activism <laughs> and all these different initiatives that you're doing. Um, What's olive harvest? Um, okay. What's to be there? Okay. T- talk to me. It's it's very interesting. Okay, let's start from the most recent uh, thing I'm involved in. The okay. Citadel is a uh, a beautiful space in the old city of Beit Sahur. It's like uh, just two minutes. actually urbanly connected to Bethlehem. Mm. Um, it started as a school back in 1865. And... Uh, turned into a boys school, a girls school, abandoned for a while, renovated into a restaurant, abandoned. And the space is beautiful. So in 2019, I was like, I need space for my educational work, (laughs) you know. So I asked the family that runs it if I can do that. And that was the start of a multipurpose space, nice, clean, with good uh, equipment, Good coffee, (laughs) you know. Yes, you're Um, such a coffee person. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Where we do lectures on what's happening in Palestine, we do cultural events, we make the space available for anybody that really wants to to use it and pursue some kind of uh, activism or knowledge on any aspect of their life. Like we want to have a hub that can be inspiring for a growing uh, Palestinians, like you know, it's accessible to to every possible person. Uh, so that's the let's say the place that hosts us. To be there is something else. To be there is the actual educational thing. It mm-hmm. comes out from maybe my experience in the United States, but also from the transformation I see in people's understanding of what's happening in Palestine. So. How can I understand the reality in Palestine? You have to be there. Nice. You know? Like it's a physical presence. The physical presence is important. So when you are in a place, you have to be there physically. You have to be there mentally. You have to be there spiritually. Uh, so we try to provide those three elements or three dimensions of work. So we have 10... These programs designed where people come in, learn about the different forms of Israeli oppression, the uh, how, 
that the state of Israel controlled land, controls Palestinians on the land, and the outcome of that control in each and every community. Mm. We also, because Israeli violation of our rights is so profound, we have different human rights organizations, each one like focuses on one aspect. Mm. So we have uh, like the organization I served in, which is Badil for Refugees and Residency Rights, that's the aspect they focus on. Defense for Children International, that's the, they, they, they focus on the aspect of children. Al-Haq, they focus on uh, international human rights law. Al-Damir, prisoners of war. So we do have that bank of knowledge that is available for people to learn about each one of those aspects of life that are being violated by the state of Israel. So we provide the mind with some knowledge. And then, but you can't fix anybody's spirit, right? <laughs> uh, we give people an opportunity to actually do some physical work. Right. You know, w- there's something beautiful about actually doing physical work because mm-hmm. the, when you give, you heal your, uh, your soul in a way, right. you know? So that's kind of the combination of the different things that we do. The olive harvest is when we do olive harvest as a form of work, but we also do the sightseeing and we do the lectures. Right. You know, like human history in Palestine extends on nearly 10,000 years. Like the oldest city in the geography of Palestine is called Jericho. Um, in Jericho, you can touch Stone Age. In Jericho, you can touch Bronze Age because we have things that were left from those eras. Like we have towers, we have archaeological sites, and so on. Also in Palestine, you can see things. So you can touch things, you can see things that were, you know, or use places and spaces that have been around for more for a couple of thousand years. Mm-hmm. Like the one place I used to take for granted... <laughs> is the oldest continuously used church on the planet, which is the birthplace of Jesus, the birthplace of Isa Islam, the church of the nativity. I always took it for granted. And we were like, yeah, it has been around for 1,600 years. What's this church called? The church of the nativity. You know, it's the heart of Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. So you can touch it. Mm. You can see it. You'll enjoy the artwork and the, the work of people from for you, like what you would see with the golden dome of the rock right. in Jerusalem. 1400 years of history placed on one space but you can also taste history wow we have olive trees in palestine that cover more than 4500 years of our human history the oldest olive tree we picked is actually about 4500 years so you can taste it <laughs> you know the olive harvest is not about celebrating the olive harvest is inspired by like making people feel unsafe on their land. Like we have m- more than seven million ancient olive trees mm-hmm. that are inherited by Palestinian families, and people have been continuously looking after them. And that sector of our life is being completely destroyed by the Israeli oppressor uh, to, to build their infrastructure of colonization in the occupied West Bank. Sixty percent of the arable land in the occupied West Bank is covered with olive trees. So 
that's everywhere. Um, so one of the things that the Israelis do, and you could, the season is uh, mid-October um, until mid-November. Um, it's not exceptional to this season that you would see settlers murdering Palestinians during the olive harvest, attacking and terrorizing Palestinians during the olive harvest, um, cutting down and burning down olive trees. It's not exceptional to this uh, October-November period. It's actually something that they have been doing uh, for a long time. Just look up ol- olive harvest Palestine. Mm. And then you will see a lot of reports and uh, news pieces and so on. So what we do with the olive harvest is that we understand the Israeli military law to be a law applied upon Palestinian survivors. So it applies on me. 1,665 military orders are applied on the Palestinian residents of the West Bank. Who are the people that this law doesn't apply to? Israeli settlers. I mean, Israeli civilians living as colonizers and settlers in the West Bank and foreign visitors. Hmm. So what we do is like we try to, we invite foreigners to come and help out with the olive harvest. So if the Palestinians are harassed, you know, those foreigners will continue to do the assistance and the help. Right. You know, so in a way, like, you expose the absurdity of Israeli criminal behavior, like how it works. Also, all of harvest is like a family issue. So, like, not many family have enough, like, manpower to do it. It's a cultural thing. Hmm. So you have an aspect from history, an aspect from the culture, an aspect from economy, an aspect from politics, like the olive tree can tell the, can give it to you all in one in one day. So the olive harvest is definitely one of the most uh, beautiful things that uh, I've been involved in since 2006. Unfortunately, this October we had to cancel it right. uh, because of the genocide. You grew up in in Palestine, which since the day you were born was already under illegal occupation. It was an apartheid state, um, settler colonialism. How many massacres and wars have you witnessed throughout your life? What, how has that impacted you? So what happens to you yeah. when you are subject to racism every minute of every day of your life survive it the honest answer is that I do not know from even before I was aware I can tell you like in 1981 the massacres of 1982 massacres in 1984 that's before I came to the age of reason the one thing that was shocking to me was a massacre in Al-Aqsa Mosque I couldn't understand like why would anybody go into a place of worship and murder worshippers who are really angry. So how many massacres? I, I do not know. But we will know once Israeli criminal behavior and savagery 
comes an end. This is not exceptional to us. Like this is not exceptional to us in Palestine. You know when the world knew that nearly six million Jewish people were exterminated by Nazi Germany, or oh, and not in the sixties, not mm-hmm. in the in the eighties, right? Well, Forty years after the atrocity came to an end, we managed to find like the victims down to the name. We're a little bit more documented when our memory is a little bit stronger and we're more unified, like we, every family knows its, its losses. So the moment the Israeli savagery comes to an end, we will be able to tell you exactly, down to the name, how many of us were slaughtered by this savage regime. So what gives you hope um, going through all of this since you were young what gives you hope? What keeps you going? It's very, very simple. What keeps me going is like uh, I'm a bitter loser, <laughs> you know. I, I do not want to submit to to it. I've seen so many of us like giving up halfway and so on. So uh, if you fight, you might lose. If you don't, you've already lost. And my battle is not that. It's not like I'm... I'm sacrificing my life or I've been killed, which is, you know, I I walk the ground carrying the debt I have for each and every one of us that was murdered for my freedom, you know? And it's a beautiful honor to carry. What gives me hope? I look back in my family's history or human history in Palestine in general, which is longer than my family's history. Uh, and I see 23 different civilizations, many of which were uh, oppressive. And that makes me understand that oppression is not sustainable on the land of Palestine. So many people came to Palestine to eliminate it. Call them like Alexander the Great, call them Crusaders, call them whoever you want, you know. The one thing in common between all of them is that they failed because oppression is not sustainable on the land of Palestine. Mm -hmm. So the current oppressor is not so exceptional, like it's not exceptional. The current oppressor is just one of all those oppressors that will come, leave an evil story behind and uh, a lesson to learn for the next generations. can tell you one thing. I will never, ever forgive any Israeli person for denying me my right to freedom for every single minute of my life. I will not do that because there's no way for me to get them back. So what will I do? I'll just get out of the way. Right. You know? I will get out of the way and try to live a day of freedom in Palestine if it happened. In my culture, there is a very beautiful concept of forgiveness. Mm. Which is forgive you forgive when you can. Like, for example, you smash my face. And you'll run away. <laughs> right. So I have no power over you. And people will be like, yeah, would you forgive him for smashing your face? And I was like, I can't. 
because I'm not in a position of power, right? You know, I'm in a position of pity, a position of weakness. My right. face is broken. The moment you come to me, I like, forgive me for breaking your face. <laughs> that's when you give me the power, and that's exactly when you get my forgiveness. Baha, I was watching an interview with Norman Finkelstein, someone who has been documenting and chronicling the Palestinian struggle, suffering resistance for more than a decade. Um, to give context, his parents were Jewish Holocaust survivors during the Nazi era. He, and he said something interesting, and that is that in 2020, he had lost all hope and given up. And he told himself that he's such an old man right now with only a few years left. So maybe it's time to move on. He said it was such a painful decision for him. And then October 7th happened when Palestinians broke through the siege of Gaza. And that moment gave him a renewed sense of hope. I'm wondering how important of a day October 7th is to you did you feel something different looking at Palestinians breaking out of this siege that, you know, from this country with the biggest military might in the Middle East, 16 years of illegal blockade, a country or a siege thought to be impenetrable by the West. You know, people from the West, that was their mindset people in Israel, and Palestinians broke through that siege. large part of the genocide is to eliminate that memory. October 7th uh, is a day that will uh, continue to be analyzed. This impact is being formed. The genocide is uh, primarily to actually turn that day into the beginning of a dark day, the beginning of the elimination and genocide of the Palestinian people in Gaza. But uh, we we know, like, uh, no, no genocide can actually take moments of hope away from us. The way October 7th was orchestrated is to attack each and every uh, Israeli military base responsible for maintaining a merciless siege on Gaza. There is actually a Gaza unit in the Israeli army that was attacked. So there were three hours of some kind of freedom. Now the state of Israel went crazy because of that military defeat. And if you notice, one of the things they did was like bombarding international media with lies after lies after lies after lies because they need to save the reputation of their army. Right. If you understand Israel's propaganda, you know why they do what they do. You know that the most sacred god in the state of Israel is the Israeli army. The, the army had a beaten for one day by people who are viewed as, you know, residents of a concentration camp. To see a Palestinian flag, put up above a tank was strange. 
to see Israeli soldiers being arrested for actually serving criminal regime and maintaining a criminal siege was strange. The state of Israel had to actually murder Jewish Israelis on that day to just save the reputation of that, of that army. Every lie they made was debunked. 7th of October is buried below a genocide now. It just tells us, like, it doesn't matter what you do to the Palestinian people. There's no way on earth 100% of us will be submissive to your mighty, oppressive savagery. It breaks your brain to actually see to what level oppressed people are willing to go to express rejection to their oppressors and to what level oppressors can go to prove that they have super, like moral superiority mm-hmm. to the people they, they oppress. You know, they, they showed pictures of some kind of like a Kurdish female soldier being raped by, I don't know, and promoted her, that victim, that Kurdish victim was promoted as an Israeli victim. What level the state of Israel is going to go on? May last year, actually, we lost the most renowned Palestinian journalist, Shirin Abu Akhla. Right. The Israelis knew who aimed at her and who murdered her. And they lied about it. October 7th have brought hope. It reminded us of some of the ways to deal with the savagery of oppression. However you look at October 7, what has happened since then is Israel carpet bombing, going full-on genocidal mode, full-on ethnic cleansing. 15,000, 20,000 people have died. At least that's the numbers we know for now. We know these things as, as the days and weeks progress, as more bodies are, are brought from the rubble, the numbers are only going to go up. More than that, 1.7 million Palestinians from Gaza have been displaced. There is a word for it. It's called ethnic cleansing. Before we wrap this conversation, where do we go from here? Israel is Israel. Like the savagery of the state of Israel is not going to change. It's not going to tone down or increase. Like whenever they have an opportunity to murder Palestinians, that's good because that is... Uh, the state of Israel, like they're, they know that in order to have a safe Israel, we have to murder those Palestinians. So murder and oppression of the Palestinian people goes hand in hand with the existence of an Israeli government, with upholding uh, Jewish nationalism or uh, Jewish social nationalism, let's say, as an ideology in the state. Um, Where do we go? We don't have many places to go. Uh, We, as Palestinian people, uh, it doesn't matter if we are submissive to it or we resist it, like we're subject to that elimination. It doesn't matter. We, as Palestinians, will continue to survive until the time that Israel's savagery and oppression and apartheid become part of history. Uh, where do international community go? Like international community have decided. Governments 
are willing to sacrifice their own people, you know, in order to support the criminal behavior of the state of Israel. Politicians, where do people go? People have been on the streets uh, day in, day out. This genocide has not shaked Israel's allies by one inch. And they will continue to provide economic, diplomatic, and military support for this criminal regime. So where do we go? We survive, we resist. Oppression is an invitation for rejection and resistance. And it's okay. If you're tired, you're tired. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. It's okay. But it is an invitation for for struggle. We don't have many options. We, we don't have the options of resting while injustice is going on. We have options of being in denial of it. We have the options of supporting it. We have the options of rejecting it. Keep rejecting Israeli savagery and move on. <laughs> That's it. Baha, thank you so much for joining me today. That was Baha Hilo. He's a Palestinian activist and an educator. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts available on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.